Scott McNamara with What's New and Adapted Physical Education, bringing you another exciting episode. And today I am sitting with Ron Croce, who is a a very kind of like maj paj expert in, yeah. in, in biomechanics, neuropsychology, neuroscience, and adapted physical activity, who is also a colleague of mine uh, and a mentor in the uh, at the University of New Hampshire, where I'm at. And I've had the, the, the privilege to get to know uh, Dr. Ryan Croce over the last year uh, being here. And he has a very interesting kind of path and maybe view of adapted physical activity. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> All right. So first off, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background in adapted physical activity? Well, I, uh, I got my degree at Brooklyn College way, way back, uh, I think it was 1972 when I graduated in physical education, because back then there weren't departments of kinesiology or exercise and movement science, it was physical education. Uh, then from there, went to and got my graduate at Temple University in motor learning and development. And I did an emphasis with some special ed education classes with atypical children. Then I floated out to Italy uh, where I played in the Italian Baseball League, believe it or not. Went to medical school for two years and taught at an American school. And then when I decided to come back, wound up in New Mexico and then got my PhD at New Mexico. And it started out in exercise science and adapted physical education because I was always interested in uh, disabled individuals. And then I... Uh, after I got finished with all my coursework, uh, at, toward more about the middle part, I took a class in uh, cognitive neuropsych and fell in love with neuroscience. So then I did another, I guess you would call it a minor, but it's really all the classes that they had, a major in cognitive neuropsych. And we had a med school at New Mexico and did coursework in the med school in uh, neurology and neuroscience. So, that's how I get all these combinations with neuroscience and exercise science and adaptive physical education. And it's worked out great because in my research, it's been a lot with motor learning and development and also neuroscience and a lot of research also on exercise and cognition and individuals with disabilities. So um, it's kind of all come together, but it's, as you said, kind of a hodgepodge but not really. I spent about five or six years getting my doctorate uh, because I was doing so many different things, but it was great. And who wanted to work anyway? It was perfect, right? Exactly. I shouldn't say Maj Paj, but it's definitely a unique kind of, um, you know, you have a very unique journey in our field. And I honestly, I think that it's really important that we have people like yourself in our field doing stuff around disability or having stuff around disability. Right. You know, I, I agree with you. You know, a colleague of mine, Mike Horvat, who now is retired and he was at Georgia, we used to talk about a lot of the, the training that was going on at a lot of universities for people in adapted. And one of the problems early on was a lot of the people graduating, there was so much of an emphasis on how to teach individuals with disabilities. So people were taking a class in methods and practices of teaching adaptive physical education to physically disabled, intellectually disabled, you know, a slew of those courses. 
that a lot of people who were prepared at the doctorate level never really got a strong cognate area. And I think that hurt our profession uh, in, the, in the past in individuals coming out with a good cognate area in which they can do research. I think it hurt. Uh, it's changed now uh, because of the way the whole field has changed, but that I think was a problem in the past. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, when you say cognate, just for our listeners, that's like a minor in your PhD. Uh, and I got mine in educational leadership, which was an interesting one that I got um, as well. Um, which has kind of helped my research line a little bit, but uh, it's, I think the other thing that's happening now maybe is that we're, even though maybe we do have good minors, we might have good stuff going on, we're kind of becoming a little homogenous. Um, <clears throat> the research methods or, or areas of focus are kind of often the same. Um, and so we're replicating each other versus like you're like I don't know anybody like yourself that has an exercise science neuropsychology right mechanics background and adaptive physical activity and honestly that's you know partially what I want to dive into is like the importance of those things mm -hmm. in the field of adaptive physical activity because I think um there's very you know social emotional learning those are important like um or inclusion um and, you know, advocating for the rights of people with disabilities, getting in this kind of social justice realm of it. Right. No, very important. But right now, those things, I think, are they're big right now. And that's great. But I do. And one of the things that we've talked about before is sometimes losing our uh, maybe our home in the motor skill aspect of it. Yes. And I know that's kind of your, one of your big areas of training. Um, and, and so just briefly, maybe you can talk about the importance of, um, you know, teaching motor skills and such to people with disabilities in our field. Yeah, we've discussed this for the audience, uh, Scott and I, on many times. And Scott is a big believer in what I believe in. It's almost, uh, I think of it as reverse engineering when you're dealing with children with disabilities, uh, in the sense that through assessment, and sometimes you can just eyeball it, you can see, you see the capacities of these individuals, what they're capable of doing. And then you go backwards and say, well, we want to get involved in games and activities, but they don't have the skills to do that. So in order for them to start to get involved in sport and games and activities, what do they need? Well, you go backwards. What are the prerequisites for someone to be able to engage in sport and activity? Well, basic and fundamental motor patterns. So if they don't have those, you need to teach those so that they can in turn incorporate them into more advanced games and activities. If you're going again with this reverse engineering, if they don't have the basic motor patterns, then what's the prerequisite of that? So now you have to go back and say, well, what are the primary or the foundational parts of being able to do fundamental motor patterns? Well, part of it is if they have still primitive reflexes, getting rid of those. Or it could be basically strength. They don't have the prerequisite strength to perform these skills. So again, you're going backwards even further. And we discussed this uh, before, uh, my first encountering this reverse engineering, when I was at New Mexico, I did a six month uh, 
kind of like an internship, but actually got paid at this developmental institute outside of Albuquerque. And naturally the new person got the non-ambulatories where everyone else was dealing with the more ambulatories. And so I'm saying to myself, okay, what do I do? Uh, and so that's where I got the idea of kind of reverse engineering. Went back to the basic prerequisite skills, worked on those, tried to develop those so they could then do motor patterns and then from there moving on. So I think a good foundation of motor development, no modeling what particular milestones are. Understanding what skills, prerequisite skills are needed to do certain more advanced skills and then working on those prerequisite skills if they don't have them. I think that's so foundational. We tend to always want to get them quickly engaged in games and activities and sport, but we have to make sure they have the skills to do that first. Yeah, and as you're saying that, and I know we have talked about this, but I'm even thinking about my intro to APE class, and I'm thinking a few things. One is like, so you talk about primitive reflexes, trying to inhibit those reflexes. Mm -hmm. I remember working with uh, kids with severe and profound disabilities that were older, um, probably like in their late teens, early 20s and uh, in the schools. And yeah, being kind of thrown into that group and being like, OK, what am I supposed to do? You yeah. know, they're, they're crawling or they're, you know, they're in a, uh, a chair and they're, you know, they're and, and it ended up being a great experience for me because mm -hmm. yeah, you break down skills to the, exactly. to the very like minimum and, and in a way makes you really, I think, well-rounded and thinking about motor skills because you're starting to think not about even like you break down a throw into uh, what is a throw, you know, what is a, uh, what does it mean to engage in these things, trying to get voluntary movements and yeah, head motion yeah. and turning towards me and, and doing it into a game setting. Yeah. And you know what it is? And this is what students at times don't realize. Everything you're taking and you're saying, oh, why do I have to take this? Makes you well-rounded. So the mode of development is essential because you understand milestones and what individuals are capable of doing. And then when you take your adaptive physical education classes, they're telling you some of the limitations you might see with certain disabilities, as well as certain things. You have to be careful when you do things with these children because it could injure them and be detrimental. And then when you have your motor learning classes, how to develop practice schedules and types of practice and reinforcement. It's a confluence of all of these things that make you a better teacher. And what you were just talking about, Scott, was the basic fundamental pedagogical skill we all learn, task analysis. You know, you got to task analyze the skill. What is the skill? How do I break it down? How can I break down the skill so they can learn parts and then put it together as an integrative whole? I mean, all of these things come into play along with your exercise physiology. So if you need to develop strength and endurance, you know what you're doing. And, and it's, it, if you look at it, it's one of the more complicated areas in education for students to learn because it's encompassing just so much more than just pedagogy. It's encompassing, as we said, motor learning, motor development, exercise physiology, all of these things. Tough.
a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So then you throw disability into it and it can get right. yeah, more complicated. Yeah. And as we we're talking, I was just thinking like about my intro to adaptive physical education course. And I've been, you know, teaching <clears throat> course for seven years or something now in some mm -hmm. capacity. And I've taken out a mo I've taken out the motor development aspect of it. I had about two classes and I would teach them about primitive and reflexive, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And and talk about that aspect of it and understanding kind of breaking down the skills. And I teach them a few like kind of, you know, um, anyways. And now I'm like, oh, man, maybe I should. It, the, the intro class, which many students, that's all they get before they teach kids with disabilities. It's such a it's such a difficult class to teach because you have to prioritize different topics. Now, Absolutely. Out, I was like, you know what? This maybe isn't the job of the intro to APE class to teach this stuff. No, you're right. The reality is, though, is likely they're not getting it. You're right, class, because so. you really need probably to train undergraduates, if you're doing it correctly, you probably need APE 1 and APE 2. Yeah. Uh, you know, APE 1 maybe introducing them to all the different disabilities and things to be careful of and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then APA 2 the instructional methodology you need to use. And it's kind of that, that concept that Mike Corbett and I used in our text. And it's the same thing. The first part is a lot about, okay, motor development, uh, motor control, postural control, all these things. And then the second part is teaching all these individual disabilities and what you need to do. So it kind of builds much the same way that we're talking, um, but the way the curriculums are devised now, it's difficult to do multiple classes. And so you try and pack it into one class and hope the students are interested enough so they'll, they'll engage in further readings that will help them, you know? Yeah, that, that does seem to be a thing too. You wanna to get the students interested or teachers interested to do it enough so that um, so that they actually go and look at the stuff on their own. Exactly. Um, yeah, because if they're not, then they're just going to stop at your class and then that's not good enough. And then that's it. Yeah. So we've discussed the, you know, the importance of understanding how the brain functions and motor development and disability several times. Can you briefly describe why understanding these interactions are so vital to APE teachers? Because all of those things set limitations. Uh, and if it's just pure motor development, if you're trying to, even in a regular physical education class at the elementary level, if you're trying to do things that children developmentally are not capable of doing, it's going to lead to failure. So we want to make sure we're doing developmentally appropriate physical education at all levels. And then when you put on top of that, the particular disabilities, some of them neurologically based, some of them physically based, they impose additional limitations that we have to understand so that we can better teach those individuals. And what it may mean because of those limitations, because of neurological deficits or physical deficits, we have to work around that. We can't do anything about it. So we have to teach those individuals to adapt their patterns, motor patterns and skills because of those limitations so that they can be functional. Remember, we're trying to teach them above everything else 
motor skills that they can then apply later in life, be it at work, be it during games, activities, sports, whatever it may be. And that's the key. I did a study many years ago looking at uh, exercise and aerobic and strength uh, training with individuals with developmental disabilities, and then looking at their ability to perform functional tasks, work tasks that they would do. And when you looked at the control group compared to the groups undergoing training, it was night and day. And let's face it, a lot of these individuals, when they get out, will be doing a lot of physical types of jobs. And so we have to prepare them physically in terms of strength, endurance, motor skills, object manipulation, whatever it might be, so that they can do those future skills. So getting back to your questions, it, it allows us to understand the limitations that these individuals have and hopefully ways in which we can teach them skills and work around those limitations or potentially ameliorate those limitations and help them in terms of remediation. Yeah, I think that's an interesting concept too of like, so, okay, sometimes we can teach them the correct motor pattern, right? Mm -hmm. What is the skill is and what their disability is, right? But yep. sometimes we're never going to get a proper, right? Uh, you know, baseball strike, right? That's never going right. to happen with a kid with uh, CP, right? If they have, you know, yeah, right. it's not going to happen. So then what, so then what is the object then for the teacher? Is it to give up on the skill? Is it to change the skill? Is it to, you know, you know what I mean? Right. No, um, absolutely. You know, you know, Scott, if you think about it, going back from your undergraduate days when you had introduction to physical education, you learned about the history of our profession. In the States, it was the remedial gymnastics from Sweden and Germany. And if you think about it, we were in the late 1800s and early 1900s, physical therapy, because that's what we did. And uh, if you ever look at some of the old gymnasium with the stall bars and some of those old cool things that were there, that was there to build strength, endurance, flexibility, and to remediate postural defects and things like that. And then with Dewey, we switched over more to teaching games, activities, and sports, uh, but we still retain that old remedial emphasis. And in some ways, that's what adaptive physical education is. It's, it's in some ways remedial, uh, some ways not. But uh, as we were saying before, it encompasses so much. We're almost a little bit of everything. Uh, and that's what we are when it comes to adaptive physical education in the schools. Yeah. Yeah. I think, though, in a, you know, we can get deeper and deeper in this conversation. A, the history part. Uh, I have a few colleagues that are really interested in getting into the history of AP because it's not well documented. No. Um, yep. And it really should be because we got to know where we're where we are from to know where we're going. Exactly. In, a, in addition, though, you talked about, okay, now we do all these things. And a little bit that is a problem um, that, you know, you know, let's take social emotional learning, for example, mm -hmm. and introduced. And I think it's important. I think it's part of the standards and that's great. But when we start adding um, 50 things that, that physical education is supposed to do, and we only see kids 50 times in school. I agree, Scott. Yes. Uh, you know, the amount of <clears throat> actual 
um, progress or impact that we're going to have is going to be limited. No, yes. that's not to say that we should be just straight physical therapists either that are no. just teaching how to do a jump. Um, but, you know, I do wonder sometimes if we're getting away from that motor skill area to, and I, I, I say this aloud, I don't have a concrete, I haven't made my decision on, on what we are and what we're supposed to be and what we're not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. But I do sometimes worry that if we get too far away from our home base, that that's going to hurt us as a field. Um, I agree. Because we won't be able to identify what it is that we do. Yeah, yeah. Everything. And then we're not well, masters of one, we're, you know, masters of none. Uh, you know, no, you're absolutely, you're a hundred percent correct. And it's not only in adaptive physical education, it's in education in general. When, when we were young kids going to the public schools, the job in education was to teach. And it slowly morphed because of all the problems in society that teachers had to be psychologists and sociologists and social workers and all these things. And sometimes that takes them away from the basic tenet of what they're supposed to be doing, which is teaching. And what you're bringing up is the same thing. We have to incorporate the social and emotional in our instruction in the group process, but our main job is still to teach. And the two foundationals is motor skills and physical conditioning or physical aspects. And those are the two main things that we need to concentrate on. I just did a study where we interviewed PE teachers about their experiences working with kids with autism. And the, one of the biggest findings is, and this was across all the, the participants, they said relationship building was the number one thing to being like successful. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I'm happy. Yeah. And we need to emphasize that in teacher prep programs and everything. But at the other end, what happens after the relationship? I agree. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, it's the truth. Because, yes, that absolutely has to happen. And then we need to focus on some of that motor skills. Yeah. Getting yeah. Recreation and making sure that they're happy and successful and, and meeting their fullest potential. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Moving forward, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about motor learning. And I know we talked about this before. And there's like some... It might not be a ton of examples, but, you know, what are your thoughts on motor learning and maybe some differences or similarities between people with and without disabilities? And, and you know, what does an AP teacher need to know about motor learning patterns between people with and without disabilities? Yeah, and that's a really good question. And I, I think this comes back to a foundational question. Do individuals with various disabilities learn motor skills differently or is it the same process that's occurring and it's occurring in the brain because that's how we learn is it is it a, the same process that's occurring but there's just limitations because of the disability and that's a key thing uh, really a key thing and so you know we do research and we usually what we find in adaptive physical education and this is good we look at principles that work with quote unquote, the more normal individual and then apply them and see if they work with individuals with disabilities. And I've done a couple of those studies with intellectual disabilities, traumatic brain injury, et cetera, looking at basic motor learning principles and they hold true for individuals with disabilities. Now, the key is when we're looking at them, 
to what extent are they retained? And that's a big thing. And you kind of have brought that up. Uh, I think the, what's happening in, in the brain is the same. There are limitations so that it's more difficult for them to learn the skills. And then I think there are certain limitations because of their problems in retention of those skills. And I think that's, I think the principles work the same. The way in which they learn is very, very similar. The limitations will set limits on how well they will perform. And the other problem is, especially when we're dealing with intellectual disabilities is retention. And that's a problem that they have in every facet of education. And the problem which you brought up, maybe we only see them 50 times a year. Is that enough because they learn at a slower pace for them to learn the skills and then we lose them in the summer and they come back and they don't have much retention. And that is the major problem. Yeah, Um, I will, I'm just for my listeners. When you said uh, compared to normal people, you did air quotes. So I just want everyone to know that. But I am also thinking, you know, I know we talked about this before, but I will bring up the one example that I'm really well accustomed to of a difference that's interesting. And it might be there's specific disabilities where there is differences occurring. And namely, maybe like something like visual impairments or hearing Mm -hmm. impairments or autism, where there's sensory integration situations occurring, which do affect the brain. Right. And And that's just the limitations on how much they can learn. But the principles to help them learn will be the same. It will set limitations. And you have to use well, different modalities for some of them. Yes. Well, I was going to bring up the attentional focus aspect. Right. Because the attentional focus and attentional focus is the idea that um, it's the constraint action hypothesis. And basically, if we focus on external things during task, especially if it's not at the novice level, mm-hmm. it perform better than internal. And external right. can be focusing on the ball, focusing on the hoop, focusing on the dartboard. Right. Um, focusing often on your arms, your limbs and all that. Stuff. Right. Right. So we did it. We Dr. Becker, who's now at the University of Tennessee, he was somebody that was a mentor of mine um, at Texas Women's University. He uh, and I did some studies with kids with visual impairments. We even compared it to people, able bodied people. And we uh, often found that in uh, continuous tasks. So mm-hmm. balancing and such did not find it in discrete tasks, but continuous tasks that they that internal uh attentional focus allowed them to be a lot more successful this is kind of common yeah. sense in a way um that we would think about it that hey like they can't see those things so it'd make a lot more sense that, right. that that focusing on their body and where their body is positioned would do better but i do wonder that gets into the motor learning a little bit um into a much deeper aspect of are they not receiving the benefit of an external benefit of, of the external focus or are they receiving an actual internal benefit? And yeah. then that does get into the brain functioning a little bit in motor learning of, are they, is their brain, you know, mo- maneuvering around to babes emphasize something else versus something uh, other, so. No, no, you're absolutely right. And you know, this is, you bring up something that's really interesting. What, there's a current theory, cause no one really knows. Yes. Why do we have two hemispheres? I mean, why not just one hemisphere and aspects of different parts of the brain are more involved. But, you know, the current theory is 
yes, there are areas that are functionally important for speaking and, 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 and uh, hearing and seeing and so forth, but it's really is a network system. The whole brain is involved in incorporating those aspects. But there are some problems that arise uh, because of damage to one side of the brain compared to the other. And what they think, why we have two hemispheres. The left hemisphere is more involved with the minutia of how to perform a particular skill. So say basketball, the left side of the brain is more involved in the dribbling. The right side is involved more with the external environment and everything that's around. So the right side of the brain now is more involved with where are the defenders, where are my co-teammates, how can I do the ball, pass, shoot, whatever it is. So different parts of the brain are doing different things. And it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. You're a chicken and you're eating. You're concentrating on pecking that food. Well, you gotta be aware if there's lions and tigers, oh my, <laughs> around. And so that's the job of the right side of the brain to engage in what's going on around. So you're not killed, eaten. So it kind of comes to the same thing that you're talking about with the attentional resources, external, internal. It's using different parts of the brain. And when you have different types of disabilities, some of those things that we've just talked about, there's limitations. And so you have to work around those limitations. The question you bring up is by doing it, are we limiting them in the future, right? Well, in I applying think, that? I think what I'm kind of getting at is there's a question that I think arise of, so they, they benefit from an internal focus. Right. It goes against the theory, which has right. to do with theories all tied to different parts of the brain and how, right. that, uh, which I could not recall without looking at the literature. That's fine. Don't um, worry. About it. But uh, anyways, though, like <clears throat> when you get into that, though, um, the question then becomes of, are they actually getting an internal, is the internal focus actually benefiting them? Right. Or is it that because they don't get it, they're not, is it basically what we're finding is that they're not getting an external benefit at all? Right. Of course, the internal a little bit. Right, better. right, right, right. So in, we don't know that answer. Like you right. said. Right. But if that is the case, and then we, and there's actually been a little bit of research with like people with Parkinson's um, and autism uh, that's found the same thing. <laughs> <coughs> and so again becomes is it because they're an inattentional focus very important in, in pe physical therapy right, right. that's how we provide our instruction and actually research shows that we often <coughs> give improper instruction and we operate right. on internal versus external anyways um saying that all for my listeners but uh like with all that though it, it, the, yeah this question is it is more of like it, I mean, yeah, I, it, it's a question of it, it, brain functioning. Is the brain kind of developed a new way to be um, to, to be efficient and, and, fun, and, and functional? Or uh, is it just, hey, there's a limitation? And right. And the other aspect, and I think you were getting at this as well. Okay, even if they're more internally generated, so much of what in the future as well as the present, that they will in, be engaged and encountering deals with external. 
So should we be teaching them so they learn to use those external cues, right? Even though the internal cues may be what helps them learn the skills initially, in the long term, do we need to also teach them how to use those external cues so they become more proficient at that? A, a, good, a great example, and I just taught my neurology class this summer, with Parkinson's. Parkinson's uh, is, a, is a problem dealing with the basal ganglia, although the basal ganglia is not the fault, it's another place, but it doesn't matter. But the basal ganglia interacts more with the medial premotor area in the brain. And the lateral part of the premotor area deals more with the cerebellum, which deals with more external cues. So when I work with Parkinson's patients in the hospital, we would use external cues for walking, like tap your hand. So they use that external cue. Or what we would do is to have checkerboard linoleum floors so they can use those checkers, those colors as cues for walking. So what we're doing for them to make that adaptable is we're shifting from internal basal ganglia cueing to more external cerebellar cueing so that they can walk. Now, they're not gonna be efficient walkers, but at least they become ambulatory. And so we do have different parts of the brain involved with movement that rely on external cues and internal cues. We, having more uh, non-atypical movement and have more basic, normal, basic movement pattern, we utilize both. We don't even know, we just do it. They don't a lot of times. So the, and I don't have the answer to this at all. Do we just concentrate on what's best at the moment or do we want to prepare them for using everything which might be in their future? I guess both. What do you think? I have no idea. I, I mean, but you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, I do. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know the answer. And those, again, that becomes just this broad educational question too that you can apply to everything. You want to focus on what they can be successful at at right. the moment, or are you trying to do this kind of wider exactly. thing? Um, um, and just real quick to put a cap on what we're talking about the tensional focus, which is screech cast. So we had them like rolling a goal ball at a wall. Uh -huh. Focuses were much better. Right. Like focusing on the ball and the wall, but in a continuous task where they're balancing, you know, that's a very different task where there's right. hard and they're not having something that they can look at. Like you said, like looking at the, the, um, the checkers or anything. Exactly. Like so exactly. It's, it's definitely unique. So, and I, well, and you know, Scott, this brings to one other quick thing that we've talked about numerous times. This again is incorporating all that coursework that undergraduates uh, encounter. So you're talking about discrete and continuous skills, basic motor learning principles that they learn. What is a discrete? What is a continuous skill? So to apply that research, they have to understand those aspects. Uh, when we're teaching these individual skills, one of the things we want is maximum, not only retention, but transfer. How do we maximize transfer? That gets us into the whole aspect of contextual interference and variable practice so that they can take the skills they learn in one situation and transfer it to new situations. And we have to be thinking about that.
I'm going to transition really briefly before yeah. we finish. One last question before I come to my last question. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I, you're also an expert and you teach our biomechanics and PE class. Uh -huh. um, and I just want to like briefly, I think it's an important area. And again, I think it's one that, A, my students, especially at my previous institutions, they dreaded. Just dreaded. Yes. I haven't seen that as much here because I think you teach it a little bit different, but yeah. um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of biomechanics for a physical educator and what maybe kind of the most important aspects they need to know? At, you know I, a, a great question. Biomechanics, knowledge of it. And I think where my class differs from others, I don't get into the mathematics. They're not going to use that. It is basically the concepts and how you apply those concepts to teaching and coaching. And the reason why it's so important, because when you do the correct biomechanics in any skill, the skill is more efficient and usually the person is more proficient. So one of the things I do with the students is uh, as part of uh, one of the projects, they will have four fundamental skills and I show them <clears throat> a picture of an immature level and a mature level. And to look at the immature level and look at it biomechanically and what principles of biomechanics they are not utilizing that will allow them to become mature performers. And so they start to apply the concepts to situations and see, oh, they're not using summation of forces when they're jumping. What can I do now to teach them to utilize summation of forces and impulse to become better performance at the jump or throwing or running or whatever it is. So I think biomechanics is so important, but I don't think we need to teach our physical educators or adaptive physical educators advanced mathematics. We need them to understand the concept so that they can apply it. I would totally agree with that. So, and yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Cause yeah, I mean, I just remember some of my, and I won't, whatever. Yeah, some of my previous experiences. Yeah, you don't want to get people in trouble. Yeah, where the students would walk in and just be like, oh my God. No, come on. I mean, <laughs> the, the most I teach them in terms of mathematics is sometimes you know, like to get maximum distance in a throw, the angle of release, and you're talking about angle, because there are apps out there where they can just, on their iPhone, videotape if they're doing uh, coaching or even with students in, this, in a class, videotape them, play it back fairly slowly, you know, not quite frames per second, but pretty slowly, where you can actually draw in angles and looking at, you know, how deep are they squatting to jump or where is the angle of release or things like that. But you don't need equations. You just need to understand the concepts. Yeah. So my last question is in the future, how would you like to see the fields of neurology, motor learning, biomechanics, and adaptive physical activity inter intersecting more often? <clears throat> I think that's a super question. This is what I would do. I think this is the way they should also go in occupational therapy. A lot of my students are in occupational therapy or physical therapy. Everyone takes basic anatomy and physiology. So they understand at least 
to some degree, the workings of the nervous system, muscular system, blah, blah, blah. I think what we need are classes that are called human movement one and human movement two that are taught in an integrated way. So <clears throat> instead of just teaching separate classes in kinesiology where you learn all the muscles and origins and insertion or neuroscience, it's a collective together because they work together. And you can also incorporate at the same time then the biomechanics and a couple of other classes like motor learning, motor development, because it's all integrated. But you would have to devise a curriculum that would allow that to be done. But that's the way I think it should be done. So they come out understanding the gestalt of what movement is all about. Yeah, I, that would be, I think, phenomenal to have like a, a whole picture kind of idea because I, I think, as we've talked before, but like I think that um, there's often we teach in silos. Yes. And, um, and because of that, the students often, I think, struggle to transfer. Absolutely. The information that they're learning from one class to the other, and they almost look at it as, well, that's my motor learning class, so that doesn't apply to this. Exactly. exactly. And when you're teaching, you're integrating all of that knowledge. Yeah. So somehow to integrate, that's the way I would do it. Uh, I don't know if it's feasible, uh, or if not that way, uh, the instructors of all the silo type classes have to bring up how it integrates with other classes. And maybe that's, maybe that's the more practical way. I don't know. Yeah, maybe you do a class where like, especially in like a, a program like ours in kinesiology, where like every professor does two to three lectures or something like that. Exactly. And, yeah. But then the course, who gets the, you know, the actual. Who gets the credit hours. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah that's what I'm saying. Well, give you an example. <clears throat> About 15 years ago, UNH started a multidisciplinary undergraduate degree in neuroscience. It took us. 10 years to develop that program because it encompassed three different colleges. And the first thing the colleges were thinking about, who's gonna get the credit hours? And it was insane. It was insane. But. Well, with that, before I start going on my own rants. <laughs> yeah. Um, I appreciate your time, Ron, and thank My you for pleasure. coming on and talking to uh, our audiences about these awesome areas. Thank you.